0: Money Mind, expanding your mind when it comes to money matters. Here's your host, Tanya Carlson from Amplify Wealth Management.
1: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Money Mind. Today's guest is the very wise and talented Rachel King. Rachel is the owner and director of Human Risk Management, a business that she has founded where she works with leaders in finance to help them understand, identify, manage and ultimately prevent the inherent human risk within their organisations. Rachel spent almost 20 years in financial markets here in Australia and overseas. Uh, She has a long list of credentials. Rachel holds a Master of Brain and Mind Sciences from the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre with an applied research focus on leadership and policy in mental health. She also holds a Master of Education in Educational Psychology from the University of New South Wales and a bachelor's degree with an economics and psychology major. Rachel is also an accredited mental health first aid instructor, teaching leaders mental health first responder knowledge and practical skills. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks, Tanya. I'd like to, to get started by asking a couple of questions. Can you tell me about your cultural background and upbringing?
0: Yeah, um, I grew up in middle class um, Sydney suburbs on the southern Sydney side. Um, and I went to uh, just local primary schools um, over there and also to um, uh, public high school as well a girls' school, um, a selective school called St George Girls' High. Um, and yeah, pretty much stayed in that area until I um, started university and then began moving you know, over various parts of Sydney to live.
1: Great. So a nice a nice uh, standard suburban upbringing.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: Great. Lovely. Perfect. And the second question we ask is, are you a saver, a spender or an
0: in-betweener? Mm, my default position is probably saver. Good. Um, gravitating sometimes, I guess, towards an in-betweener, um, depending upon, you know, where I've been at, at various times in my life, um, what my current needs are and and those kinds of um, conditions. But yeah, I think I gravitate towards a saver side, really.
1: Well done. Good. I guess I'd like to start by going back in history and uh, discussing your early career in finance. Um, as I understand it, you worked in credit and fixed income markets. So, I mean, what interested you in finance early in your career?
0: Well, I basically um, left a uni and to be quite honest, um, I always thought I'd probably be more likely to go down a kind of marketing um, angle on career, but we came I came out of uni in the early um, 1990s and we were, as many people will perhaps remember, uh, you know, just heading into a recession at that time. So actually there were far fewer jobs and far fewer graduate kind of um, cadetships around at that time. Uh, so I ended up taking one with one of the major banks, um, and yeah, therefore kind of ended up down the financial markets and, and banking career path, which I hadn't really, um, considered <laughs> when yeah. I was growing up, but yeah, as it turned out, yeah, I loved it. And, uh, you know, had many great experiences and learning in that, um, field.
1: Great. It's funny where life takes you sometimes, isn't it, can be circumstantial and, you, you spend a bit of time living and working in uh, the UK. What's your favourite memory from that time?
0: Oh, I think just the um, exposure to global markets, really. I started over there in 1996 or 7. And, you know, at that time, Europe still, um, you know, the EU had not been formed. So it was great working with all the different um, currencies across Europe, And I was, you know, I consider myself fortunate to have been, you know, working there at that time to experience, you know, different, as I said, different currencies, different cultures around currencies as well, which is interesting. Yeah, so that was an exciting time to be, you know, see that transition from, um, you know, a diverse sort of European situation in a way to a more unified one. So, yeah, that's probably those memories, and that change was um, pretty special.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you returned back to Sydney, um, was that when you started a family?
0: That's correct. Yeah, I had my um, eldest son over in London in um, 2003 and stayed over there for um, a number of months with him uh, before returning back here to uh, Sydney with him and uh, worked for the same employer that I had actually been working with um, most recently in London when um, I went on maternity leave and then started working for them here. Um, in Sydney when I returned, which was great.
1: And finance in the '90s must have been heavily male dominated. Is that right? Or
0: yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, working on trading floors at that time, yeah, particularly it was. Um, and you know, there's lots of different. Uh, I guess we've all got different experiences and stories from those times. Some of them, you know, maybe not so positive. But um, <laughs> to be honest, mine were. By far, um, very positive And I've made some great um, friendships that, you know, still continue today, um, both here yeah. and in London. So, yeah, in, but it was, again, an interesting transition um, to watch things, you know, change at that time. We didn't have many female traders, for example, back then. And that's yeah. something that's been nice to see, um, you know, changes in. Yeah, good. Excellent. And
1: so you you kind of, um, I guess, after starting a family, went back uh, to school and studied again. So what led to that decision?
0: Yeah, I, uh, as I said, I came back to Sydney and we returned to work here. But actually, when I was in London and fell pregnant with my first son, I, um, I noticed a change in my hearing. And something that I didn't mention earlier on, which I forgot to mention, would you believe, was I was actually born deaf in my right ear. So with a hearing change obviously um, happening for me later, it was a concern to me to have that checked out because I did notice that there was a bit of a hearing loss when I felt pregnant. Um, a Long story short, I actually had an acoustic neuroma, which is a tumour that grows on the um, hearing nerve, balance nerve and facial nerve. So having that actually... um, you know, grow and then removed in 2006 after moving back to Sydney, as I mentioned, um, left me actually bilaterally deaf with no natural hearing at all. Uh, So obviously that was um, going to impact, you know, my working life Mm -hmm. and um, and, how I managed, how I managed the work situation. So I um, was fortunate enough to have a cochlear implant that went into my originally uh, deaf right ear. And interestingly, I was told by the uh, sort of surgeons and all the medical profession and actually cochlear itself at the time that because that ear had not been stimulated for so long, that was the ear that had been, um, you know, i did been born deaf with, that I would not get um, speech perception from the cochlear implant, that I might get some kind of environmental noise that, um, you know, might be helpful, especially um, with two young children at that time. My youngest was eight months and my oldest was just three. Yeah. So, yeah, a little challenging to have two small children and no hearing suddenly. So, obviously, I said yes to the cochlear implant. Um, and I'm very glad that I did because although it took quite a long time for it to start um, providing any I guess useful meaningful help in terms of speech um, it certainly has you know come a long way and my experience with it has been you know slow but uh, quite amazing and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be talking to you today <laughs> but for that piece of equipment so yeah um, yeah, so as a result of that, to answer your question, I became very interested in the brain and understanding how it worked and particularly how I could get it to um, maximise this technology that I now had. So I began um, just researching the brain really myself and you know, absorbing as much information as I could um, about it. Uh, And thankfully at that time we were um, receiving a lot of new research and information around um, neuroplasticity, which is basically the brain's capacity to learn and adapt, um, which is exactly what I needed it to do (laughs) if it was going to make sense of this new technology. So, um, yeah, I basically just, you know, read as much as I could and then a number of years later when I found that the cochlea was actually starting to give me some benefit I guess I made a decision as to what do I want to do now that my hearing is you know well not my hearing but the capacity to hear with the cochlea was better and I decided I'd wanted to get some actual formal qualifications for all the research that I had been um, you know personally spending so much time on and so that's why um, I decided to go back to uni in 2015.
1: Wow I I, I have a million questions in that regard because it's quite incredible and I think it must, it's challenging to be a parent uh, with young children. So I think to lose your hearing and then be trying to get that new technology to adapt uh, and be able to be useful to you must have been incredibly challenging for you and, and your family at the time. And I don't probably know enough about cochlear to, to ask probably the most appropriate questions, but when that's first implanted, do you have to learn how to utilise the sound that comes to you?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's you know, everyone thinks of, um, you know, those kind of 60 minutes programs where they put a, a cochlear on and people suddenly, it all works. Yes. Um, it does work, I think, for some people. But um, first of all, I, um, my cochlear went into an ear that had never heard and I wasn't a young child who, um, you know, again, could adapt as quickly. So it, I didn't have that experience at all, as I mentioned. It was um, it was a process of trying to get the brain to work out how to work with this new sort of um, stimulation. I actually made up some very, very basic uh, kind of rehab, I guess, looking back now is the best word for it, yeah. um, exercise, to try to really get it to work. But it was... Um, yeah, there was a period where there was just nothing coming from it, and then a long period where it was very much just like a pretty hideous static noise, you know, yes. and then finally some feeling of sound of words, shapes falling out of that static, and then just a gradual process um, from them of more clarity. Mm.
1: Wow, it's, it's really fascinating, and, and I mean, we may come back a little bit more to that, but But I imagine very, very challenging uh, for you in so many ways, everyday life, friendships, um, obviously work, but raising children, um, all those sorts of things. We, I guess having been born with something, you learn to adapt, but when you develop something halfway through life, it, it... it's, it's, it's a very
0: different. Yeah. yeah look, different. I think because I had always only had one ear, I was probably lip-reading people far more than I realised. Yes. So I probably had a bit of a head start on that. Yes. Um, and facial expressions and yes. body language and all of those things that yes. you rely on. Um, that definitely definitely helped. But, yeah, we also learnt sign language. We had a bit of a crash course before surgery, <laughs> so um, just the immediate family and friends. And that, yeah, look, sign language is also hard to learn, you know, later in life, mm. but also you need other people in the community to be able to use sign language. So it's no point me knowing sign language and going nobody to the shops knows. if nobody at the shops knows sign language. Yes. So, you know, it was great, I guess, immediately for um, the family uh, and communication in the household. And we did indeed rely on that for probably almost four years as a primary source of communication uh, so yeah it, it was a, there was a lot of learning steep learning curve yes <laughs> at very steep in many areas absolutely yeah,
1: no doubt no doubt so your first masters then was in ed- education psychology what does that really involve
0: well, I think, as I said to you, I, I felt after doing so much research privately myself that I wanted to get a formal qualification in it. I wasn't exactly sure what that would look like. Um, I obviously had psychology um, you know, studies from my first bachelor degree and was always interested in that type of um, area anyway. Um, and then uh, the particular course that I did at UNSW did um break down the processes of the brain, absorbing information, processing information, and then, you know, relaying that information into action. So, um, so that sounded to me at the time without knowing exactly what to move into, uh, like something that would be useful given what I wanted to achieve from it. And then as I was finishing that particular master's, which I did part-time, I spotted another master's. And that, to me, I guess, was probably more where my interest was, which was really the neuroscientific, the neurobiological aspects of learning uh, from kind of a cellular level, if you like, up. And that, you know, I wasn't a big science fan at school, interestingly, but because I had you know, what do they say, you know, necessities and the yes. mother of all invention. So it's also the mother of all learning as far as I'm concerned yes. because you learn what you have to, when yes. you have to. Yes. Um, so, you know, having a real purpose to learn that information now uh, made it much easier to learn because I could apply it, which I was applying it to myself at that time. So course, that yeah. was um how I moved into the, the second master's. Okay.
1: Wow. Okay. So... The second master's, um, you've sort of focused your study on leadership and policy and mental health. What made you want to specialise in that area then, considering I guess you could have gone into more neuroplasticity and and how... Yeah,
0: Yeah, so at the end of the um, second master's degree, I basically had to make a decision of did I want to go and do a PhD Mm -hmm. after doing two masters? I was in the position to easily do that um, and create new research or did I want to actually apply the learning that I had uh, in some way? And I guess for me, having my previous career background, um, I was probably much more inclined, and you know, to actually take the research that I had the benefit of uh, learning about mm-hmm. and applying that, translating and applying that to um, the real world, and I guess particularly the business world, yeah. which really is where a lot of that research is still not um, being used as, as fully as it could be, and yet there's so much um, applicability for it. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, humans uh, make up organisations. so They do, you know, exactly. They understand humans well, then, you know, it's really going to uh, impact how the organisation runs.
1: Absolutely. So, and, and, you know, I guess if we think about um, the name of your business, Human Risk Management, It's interesting because anyone who is a leader or employer relies on humans, as you say, but we often don't, uh, I guess, risk management really sits in our subconscious because we know that hopping in a car is risky, but we, we do it every day without really thought. And so when you're running teams or employing people, again, you're not really thinking about what the risks are you're probably more thinking what can these people achieve or add to my business so how do you educate people to consider those factors
0: Well, I think it's an ongoing education and certainly something that we're transitioning into at the moment. Um, And sorry, just to answer your previous question, you asked me about my um, uh, final sort of um, dissertation topic, which was leadership and mental health. Just on that vein, I felt that that topic would more... Um, naturally, lead me back into um, the business world than if I had chosen a very um, final kind of um, scientific topic for that last last choice for that um, masters. Mm-hmm. So, given that so much of both degrees, but particularly the second one, were focused around um, you know behaviour and um, brain and behaviour and uh, development in those areas, to me that seemed like a, a natural progression. To then take that, um, that final topic and then um, move towards uh, applying that Utilizing back into the business. It. Well.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. And of course, during that time, also, there were massive changes in work health and safety legislation. So people were suddenly, organisations were suddenly finding that they had to really get on top of what kind of um, supports, what kind of knowledge, what kind of training, what kind of policies they had in place. Um, for their people, and with respect to not only physical safety in the workplace, but psychological safety um, yeah, in the workplace as well. So that naturally led at that time into yeah. that as well, which was timely.
1: Timely for you, and and then of course we now live in a pandemic, so I, I think that's really heightened mental health awareness, um, but also heightened issues for people. Do you see this as a, as a positive? Or are we still ill-equipped to deal with mental health in the workplace?
0: Oh, look, I think we're still um, on a journey, <laughs> you know, as we're not there yet. Um, and I think, you know, interestingly, Australia is one of the most advanced you know uh, countries globally in terms of um you know, being uh, sort of a bit further up the curve on this topic in the workplace, uh, which doesn't mean we've still not got, obviously, a long way yeah. to go. It just means we're further ahead than others. Okay. But I do think the pandemic definitely put mental health, you know, it elevated it in many ways from an HR, you know, issue to um, a, a C-suite issue, if not a board issue. Um, Because, you know, your employees are your assets at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, you know, if they're struggling to survive, if they're struggling to do the thing that you're employing them to do, then, you know, that's really the attention and focus has to go to that area. Because what other asset would you sit and watch deteriorating in front of your eyes? You wouldn't. Mm -hmm. You'd be giving it attention. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think it's very much, um, you know, become uh, more in the uh, spotlights than what it has been. However, I do think there's, you know, communicating it in a way that um, senior managers often can really see that it's a priority. I think that's where the... The skill is really, you know, um, t- to highlight it as an the area they should. When you employ someone today, you're really employing their brain. Yeah. You're really employing their prefrontal cortex part of their brain, yeah. the higher order executive you know, functions. Yeah. Um, so when they're stressed, when they're worried, when they're sick, you know, any of those things that um, put pressure on, you know, mental mm-hmm. effort or increased mental effort, then you're actually getting, you know, your asset base is devaluing. So, um, as I said, what else would you, you know, go and invest in and then just leave to sort of devalue like that? You wouldn't do that with any other asset. So really explaining how the brain works to those people and how they actually are losing the capacities that they're paying people for. Cool with that bigger argument of okay well what can we do to make sure they don't get into that state in the first place and obviously the workplace is a very powerful you know mechanism for either supporting people or or not yeah
1: Yeah, interesting and so um, you've also trained as a, a mental health first responder is that how that works are you teaching people what to do when they detect signs or is there anything you can share that help
0: our audience, if they... yes. Yeah, so that content, um, that's a separate course run by Mental Health First Aid Australia, although other companies do run those types of courses as well, but that just happened to be the one that I trained with. And the idea of that course, it was created in, I think, 2003 actually by um, a couple out of Canberra and it's now, you know, um, run globally and translated to, I think, seven, 27 countries or something. So it's been hugely successful. Yeah. And the, um, the idea was to basically equate uh, something with the sort of the St John's Ambulance Physical First Aid course. Okay, what do we do to give people um, basic skills mm. to um, identify support and then know who to hand them over for more professional support if we are concerned about somebody. And I think it's fair to say that every single person, you know, listening today has had a situation where, yeah, they haven't quite known what What to do with someone who's visibly distressed, um, you know, either acutely or over a long period, more chronically, um, over a longer period of time, and you know they're not right, um, but you don't quite know how to bring it up, you don't quite know how to ask them, and you don't quite know who to refer them to. So... Yeah. So really, that course is um, is value, is a valuable way of increasing people's knowledge, um, skill base, and then confidence in actually taking on and, and helping support somebody. So. Um, yeah it's been a very valuable course, and more and more companies are starting to you know have you know a numerous number of um mental health first aiders uh, available. and actually we're finding that uh, people are actually, you know are using them far more than what was actually anticipated initially. So issues like um confidentiality, and people originally thought, oh gosh, someone in the workplace may not go up and talk to a peer in the workplace about some of these topics particularly given you know maybe some stigma concerns or just you know privacy but in fact we're finding that people are having those conversations because people in the workplace you know have a better understanding of what those demands are because maybe they're doing a similar role or maybe they know the way the culture of the organization is so actually it's they've been hugely successful so far so With your company and and the work that you're doing, um,
1: what is one thing that you hope to achieve? Uh, If you could pick one thing, there's probably many, um, in in this area and, and where you see things developing.
0: Oh, well, I think the the main thing that I'm really working to um, bring attention to is this concept of human risk in the workplace. Uh, there's normally uh, buckets of risk: financial risk, non-financial risk, operational risk. You know, all these um, kind of various areas and very complex um, risk taxonomies. You know, or ways of recogni- recognizing and ordering different risks. But um, I think human risk kind of underpins you know every risk bit. in an organisation. Yeah. So it's really starting to help organizations understand that. and every time we see something you know in the newspaper about conduct, behaviour, harassment, mm-hmm. uh, mental health, you know mental health risk is really just one risk under human risk. We sort of realise that what we've been doing isn't really working. We're seeing a repeat of behaviours and a repeat of these problems. And of course, you know, humans are imperfect. So obviously, there's going to be a degree of um, inherent risk, you know, in organisations all the time. But for me, having come from that um, research background now, where I've learnt so much about the, you know, brain and behaviour, and then seeing those risks continually play out and repeat themselves, trying to sort of tie that together and say we're probably not ever going to eliminate it 100% because, as I said, humans are humans and they're imperfect. But I think we can certainly go a long way further than we currently are to actually helping understand what, um, you know, what might uh, cause some of that risk and what might mitigate that risk a bit better.
1: Okay, so so large-scale awareness, I I guess, would be... A, a goal yeah to look
0: to. yeah i always say it's time to get good at humans <laughs> so you have companies that are great at finance or great at manufacturing or you know retailing or whatever and that's yes. great however they need to get as good um at mm. humans um as they are at those other cool things that they um do
1: yeah um, it's just making me think a little bit about um the sort of esg side of of well, for me, investing—I guess—environmental, social, and governance. But that would that would fall within both social and governance policies.
0: I think, yeah, social and governance, and also CSR, corporate social responsibility. Like, it's really
1: absolutely, um,
0: yeah. And I think. You know, we're seeing a lot of focus on the environmental side now. You know, lots of companies who are really looking at their carbon footprint and, um, you know, what are they doing in that area and, uh, you know, long-term sustainability um, impacts. But I don't think they're yet seeing those other issues that we've talked about as part of the S in those um, and also part of the G to governance in yeah. terms of how you're looking after your people, what risks are you managing in terms of, you know, um, the whole organisation you know, legal risks as well that can come from, from those things. Absolutely. So definitely it fits into the S in ESG and yeah. the G and also, you know, the S in CSR. So yeah. slowly as these things are now turning up in annual reports, you know, people have to report, yes. you know, what they're doing um, for their ESG and CSR responsibilities.
1: I, I think so too. I, I mean, we we notice um, certainly in the investment space um, the E has always been the the more dominant, um, but we're seeing movements and policies to the S and G. And I think as ethical investing becomes more mainstream, we're going to see those changes and that's going to affect the work that you do. So yeah, really, really great
0: timing (laughs) for you. Well, I actually think people don't join the dots necessarily. They don't really think, what does S mean? S means well, what does it mean? It means, you know, looking after our people. Yes. It means, you know, having supports in place. It means looking after all our stakeholders, really, you yes. know, and whether yes. shareholders, whether they're customers, whether they're communities more right. broadly. But I do think they often forget that it's also their own employees and that's probably, you know, getting your own house in order first um, and making sure you're looking after your, your own people before starting to do too many ambitious things externally. In a broader society, it's like, well, you have a society yourself already in your own community, your own corporate structure, you know, so get that right and then expand out from there. Yeah,
1: yeah, I agree. Okay. And I believe that curious people um, are often sort of at the forefront of change uh, or or recognising, I guess, alert to new trends. Is there something that's on your radar at the moment in this field that you're, either investigating or, or just personally fascinated about at the Sorry, moment. what
0: was the um, curiosity, did you say? Um, yes,
1: so I was saying, is there anything, uh, is there a trend in this area that you are curious about at the moment? Is there
0: anything new? Oh, um, in the kind of human risk management area or yeah. just, yeah, or the SG, yeah. Not particularly, other than I'm already very curious and still need to see that get get played out yes. but it's for me I'm, I'm kind of excited about this opportunity for people to become more curious themselves in terms of leaders because I think as I said we've come from a period of time where one we've kind of had this you know what we call industrial era where there's a lot of hierarchical structures in you know in companies and businesses and I do feel we're shifting out of that into this more human era where there's more flat line structures um you know, in some of those tech companies are great examples, those Atlassians, you know, there's very flat structures and I guess time will tell in longer term how yeah. that plays out. Mm. But at the moment, it's looking relatively positive and I think yeah. actually the changes that have occurred from COVID, hybrid working and flexible working, play to those, um, those structures. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. already so i think yeah I'm, I'm interested to see how sort of the older regime transition to the newer regime yeah, yeah, because yeah. as i said from from my view we have so much um, research and knowledge available to help us make that transition and the nice thing about this topic is people, you know, you, anything you learn about the way humans operate, whether it's your own employees or, or not, you can always apply it to your family, you know, your friends. Yeah. It's, a, it's a skills that, you know, are applicable to your whole life. So, yes, you might, you know, learn the skills under part of a leadership training course or something, but I can guarantee you you're going to use them just as much in the household or you know, with your friends or your family or kids yeah. as you're going to use them in the company so yeah so it's a nice time for people to really say wow we have this knowledge available to us yeah. thanks to technological advancements in science really yeah. why not use them you know to the best of our ability or, or, don't or, just let them sit you know with um, yeah. them in the clinical world or the medical world yeah. let's bring them into business because that's where humans exist every day as well
1: that's right and and you know i think most of us are trying to be better humans every day, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that's definitely the way the sort of social um, demands, you know, where we're moving going forward, you know, as a society. People are demanding more from companies, not just profits and not just product. They want, you know, more from from their companies.
1: Okay, well, if we come back to the finance side, I guess, the money aspect, um, given that you've got a background in Finance, and you have studied the behaviour of people. What are some behaviours that you see people do or make when it comes to their finances?
0: Well, I am. I, um... Look, an area that I guess I've um, sort of touched on through my work recently, or well, just one small part of the area, and I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I've been fortunate enough to work with a couple of people who are experts on this, and that's, I guess, around the kind of topic of um, uh, domestic violence, and the reason I introduced that into this topic is one ways that one of the ways, actually, that that, um, you know, can play out and can look like is actually through, you know, financial control. So, given that you've asked me a financial question and we're on a bit of a financial show, yeah, yeah, I think it's relevant to talk about that aspect of it as well. Um, And as I said, I'm not an expert in it, but I think it's, um, you you know, if you have a look at a number of of organisations and particularly, I think the Commonwealth Bank is one um, organisation that's really spending some time at the moment on educating the community about this concept of financial abuse and really uh, it's about and just another form I guess of maintaining control Mm. um, and power in a relationship obviously there are numerous ways that that can play out Mm. but financial control you know is one way that you can obviously have a pretty serious um, impact on um, somebody else. So yes. I think that's, um, yeah, that's an area that really we should all be a bit more educated on going well, forward.
1: That's right. And I think um, certainly in, in in my role, we work a little bit in the divorce space and we often see people uh, not understanding the finances but also at times probably not being allowed to. So part of that uh, coercive control might be around I'll take care of the, the business side, honey, um, don't yes. be worried. And then suddenly when when that person wants to exit, if that person wants to exit the relationship, then that other party has no knowledge.
0: Of the financial yeah. situation. Yeah. So I think that's really, um, you know, really relevant. And it's almost something that I think we haven't thought of when we think about mm-hmm. Um you know gender-based violence domestic violence and abuse it's sort of so subtle and such an under sort of tone I guess to relationships that um you know it's not necessarily the first thing you look at we think about you know we think about physical violence we think about you know emotional violence I guess but the financial we don't always tie into that picture but you know that is what um what's we're getting a bigger focus on today and it it can be all kinds of things. It can be putting, um, you know, pressure on somebody to have a joint account far more quickly than what they might want to. Yeah. Uh, and obviously that can be a problem if one income earner, you know, is earning substantially more than another. Um, it can be taking money from a partner, either covertly or overtly, creating complex structures that um, become harder and harder for the other person if they're not involved in them to actually understand. understand. yeah which then also makes transparency difficult. And uh, as you said, just yeah, making it actually more difficult for somebody to either get access to information or actual funds. So, um, yeah, so I think that it's quite good that we are, you know, uh, learning more about that now and recognising that as a real, um, yeah, potential area of um, control and, and keeping power.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I, th- I think it's really important, uh, I think, the Commonwealth Bank is doing some great work in that area, and uh, you know they, they have campaigns in magazines and things like that. And, and like your work, awareness is is part of the um, way to deal with these issues, um, and certainly helping people to understand that it's not it's not them; it's a result of a particular style of abuse that um, yes. that they they yeah. can you know ha- has other other impacts, of course, financially. Um, but awareness is important.
0: Yeah, well, it's the starting stone for people to actually have a think about their own relationship with their financial situation.
1: Absolutely, which we're all about. Um you know, I think understanding your own finances is is something that is uh, the best place to start, and being aware of what you have, what you don't have, um and and what your goals are is is you know is important um, to be considering. So, how can people um, how can people contact you if they're interested in, in looking into your work or in, in inviting you in? What's the best way?
0: Uh, the best way is probably um, I can take, take a look at my website and that is rachelking.global. Pretty simple, rachelking.global. Great. Or contact me via email, which is, again, pretty simple, rachel at rachelking.com.au. Wonderful. So they're probably. Two, two best places um, to start with.
1: Excellent. Well, I certainly think it's really valuable work. It's fascinating. I think we could probably talk for hours on this, this topic, but um, but I would encourage anyone to reach out to you if they're interested um, within their organisations or, or, or notifying their organisations of your services, uh, because perhaps they're not in control of, of arranging that, but they can contact people who, who are. Um, and I guess, isn't it remarkable that technology has helped us today have this podcast? Um, I know we've got a few little teething issues with our internet and video, um, but we're still able to come to everybody today with your hearing impairment and um, and still produce a podcast,
0: which is, which is great. Yes, lovely. Thank you for having me today, Tanya. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, thank you again. All right, and we'll see you next time on Money Mind, or you'll hear us. And once again, think before you spend. This podcast is for general information only. It contains brief comments not intended to be the basis for decision-making nor to be taken as a substitute for personal advice. Please contact Amplify Wealth Management to discuss any matters that may be relevant to your individual situation. Money Mind.
0: If you have any questions about your financial future, please head to amplifywealth.com.au. Money Mind is available to download and subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.